And I was watching that video this week and uh, thinking about the church and everything that's been accomplished through the church. You know, over the centuries, uh, the church has been maligned by many people. That's probably no surprise. She's been criticized and slandered at times because of her stance on doctrine, of course, at times because of policy concerning social and moral and cultural issues, really pretty much any area where the church has engaged with individuals or communities or even society as a whole. And to be fair, the church at times has probably earned those criticisms. And so I think if church leaders are honest, then we have to be willing to admit that because, of course, the church has been far from perfect. And yet, if those who are critical of the church are to be honest as well, then they in turn have to admit that the church has been unparalleled throughout history with any other organization in terms of the good that it has accomplished in this world. The, the church has established hospitals, schools, universities that have healed, educated, trained, and sent out millions of people into the world to do wonderful things. Tremendous works of progress in art, advances in science and archaeology, innovations in the medical field, great social works have all been accomplished in the name of Christianity. Millions of churches have been established over the centuries that have had immeasurable impact on the world by improving the lives of those who are the most vulnerable among us. The Church of Jesus Christ, there really is nothing else on earth. There is nothing else on earth that we can compare it to, nothing else like it. In fact, if I just look back over the past 20 years or so of pastoral ministry and consider the five local churches that I've worked for over that period of time, in those five churches alone, I've talked about this before, I can, as a first-hand witness, point to thousands and thousands of meals that have been fed to hungry people. Thousands of items of clothing, blankets, furniture, and other uh, personal goods given to people in great need. I have watched marriages on the brink of disaster restored through the church. People with every kind of struggle and hurt healed and restored when the church wrapped her arms around them and counseled them and prayed for them and provided for them and loved them through those difficult times. I've seen so many lives truly changed transformed into the image of Christ through the ministry of the church. People delivered, healed, dedicated, saved, baptized, restored into a right relationship with Christ. And that is just in the five local churches that I've worked in, including this one. Five simple local churches filled with people working together Unified in Christ, fulfilling His great commission. Now, add in all of the other churches around the world in just that same 20-year period of time and let that sink in. How many human souls saved, delivered, healed, loved, provided for in just the past two decades? It is truly staggering. There's nothing comparable to the church of Jesus Christ. There is no group, no program, no government that even comes close. And the undeniable truth is 
the church has been an astonishing force for good in this world because while mankind has come up with a lot of ideas and programs and governments and plans for this world over the centuries, the church is God's plan for this world. And Jesus made it clear, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Okay? The, the church is God's plan, not ours. The church is His design, not ours. The church is His will for this world. In fact, I heard a speaker the other day, and I would credit him, but I don't know who he was. He said, the church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. That's true. And yet I've talked to a lot of people over these past 20 years who have said, you know what, I'm done with organized church because they're unhappy with how it's being run or how it treated them at one point or another or how it maybe ended a program that they were a part of or fill in the blank. There are plenty of reasons why people become disillusioned with the church and some of those reasons carry a lot of validity because the church is far from perfect. But listen, to say that we're done with the organized church is to say that we're done with God's plan for us which of course is not a viable option if our desire is to remain in the will of God, which we're going to see in our text this morning. And so where the church really shines is when we embrace our true identity in Christ as His body, while at the same time rejecting the temptation to try and be something that God never intended for us to be. Because it is then when we begin to try and operate outside of the mandates of Christ for His church, when we try to become primarily a, a political organization or primarily a social justice organization or primarily an influencer on current trends in pop culture, it is then that the church becomes increasingly ineffective because that is not what God designed us for. Now, Certainly, the church can have influence on, on the, the political climate in any given society. The church can and should be heavily involved and invested in works of social justice, and the church can have great impact on the culture around us. Yes to all of that, but the way that we do all of that most effectively is not by focusing primarily on any of those things. Okay? If the church is to have its greatest impact possible on governments and society and culture in general, it will be when we are focused on what He has designed and equipped and commanded us to do. It's the same reason that militaries don't make great police forces and police organizations don't make great militaries because they're primarily designed and trained and equipped to accomplish different purposes. Right? The military exists to defend our homeland and our freedoms by defeating our enemies who would try and take those things away from us. The police exist to enforce our laws by preventing and stopping and investigating crime. Two very different organizations created, designed, and equipped for very different purposes. And so the church is no different. If the church is to have its greatest impact possible, on government and society and culture. It will be when we're focused on what He designed and equipped and commanded us to do. Okay, and the church is most effective when we're making disciples of Jesus Christ as we live out His gospel together. Together. Together as His church. Because that's what He designed us for not to be a wing of a political party, 
or primarily a mercy program, or even a loud voice in pop culture. We must, with an acute sense of purpose and resolve, stay focused on the great commission that Christ has set before us if we are to accomplish His will on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, what that means for each of us as members of His church is that we have to dedicate our lives, our entire lives, to that end to serve Him as we serve each other and reach out to the rest of the world. There's just no way around it. That is going to mean that we live our lives spending ourselves and our resources for the cause of Christ. This idea that God rewards His followers by pouring out wealth and material blessings on us so that we can hoard our resources and then live the rest of our lives comfortable, entitled, and insulated from the rest of society is a failed doctrine. It is a false doctrine that is not founded in the truth of God's Word, nor should it be reflected within His church because it undermines the character and cause of Christ. Now, now, to be clear, before you throw something at me, God does pour out all kinds of blessings, material and otherwise, on His children because He loves us and He wants to bless us with good things. That is absolutely true. That is in Scripture. It's wonderful, and I'm very grateful for it. So don't feel bad for having nice things, okay? We shouldn't feel bad for having nice things as long as we understand that the purpose of those blessings isn't merely to bless us. The purpose for God's blessings and provision in our lives is not only that we can be taken care of, but also that we can take care of others by being generous with what He's given us, which is, we saw that in our story last week where Paul, referring to the spiritual and material blessings that we receive from God, he said, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us, the church, will produce thanksgiving to God. In other words, God enriches us so that we can be generous to others as we minister to one another together as the church. So He enriches our lives so that we can be generous. Everything that Jesus had, He used to bless others with. That is our example to follow. We are to practice generosity in every area of our lives just as Jesus did. And again, as we saw last week, when Paul talked about generosity through uh, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, he was referring to extravagant giving. That is the meaning of generosity in the original language that Paul uses in that chapter. We're to be extravagant givers in every area of life, but particularly, at least in the context of that chapter, with our money, we are to be extravagant givers as well which is a subject that we don't like to talk about in church. It's a subject that I have been very reticent to talk about in church, and I explained that last week, so I won't go back through it today, other than to say this is the first time, last Sunday and today, that I have ever preached a sermon on giving since we started this church four years ago, which I'm not proud of. It's just a fact. And so I would encourage you, if you weren't here last Sunday, to go back when you have time and watch last week's message on our website because it makes this message make sense, okay? It's on our YouTube channel, our website. That was part one of this message today. And it, along with today's message, is a fairly thorough exposition of what we believe to be an accurate biblical theology for giving concerning the body of Christ today, which is imperative 
for us to understand if we're to actually carry out the great commission that he gave us and do all of the things that we just talked about. And so today, we're going to finish up talking about generosity. And then next Sunday, we will begin a new sermon series working our way through the book of Esther. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is a part of the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his co-worker Timothy while Timothy was in Ephesus, and there were issues arising at the church in that city that amounted to false teachers trying to lead the believers who were there away from the truth. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy concerning the behavior of some of those who were causing the problems in the Ephesian church. And the entire letter really is Paul basically explaining to Timothy that all true Christian behavior, all true Christ-like behavior is rooted and grounded in the gospel. So he's teaching them that if they will just authentically live out the gospel, they will fulfill the great commission of Christ. And in this particular chapter, uh, Paul is addressing specifically what some in the church were teaching about money and giving and how their distortion of the truth was leading people away from Christ. So let's start with the first five verses of Tim, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul was never very delicate with people, was he? So Paul tells Timothy to teach the Christians in Ephesus to honor one another, and specifically here, he says, for those who are servants or slaves, to honor those who they work for, to be generous in their service, especially to other believers, so that the name of God and the teaching of the gospel may not be reviled. And that word reviled in the original Greek is the word blasphemeo. It, it means to blaspheme or defame. In other words, the world outside the church uh, judges the validity of our testimony and the gospel message itself based on how we conduct our lives. Paul's saying, hey guys, the world is watching us. And if we're not living according to the gospel, then those outside of the faith will revile, they will defame that message that we are claiming to live by, which is right in line with the teachings of Jesus who said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. And as if Paul's command here isn't strong enough for your average citizen, he applies it to slaves, okay? At, at the time when Christianity arose in the first century, there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. So Paul's talking to a very large segment of the population here, some of whom were treated very poorly. And yet he says, be generous in your service, even to your masters. And so although he will address wealthy people in a moment, we'll see, here he addresses those with the least material wealth 
of anyone in society with the command to be generous in their giving, even in their service. In other words, the principle applies to everyone, even to those who are the least among us or those with the least among us. And this is truly a beautiful example of how the gospel cuts right through ethnic barriers and socioeconomic barriers and class barriers and cultural barriers and on and on because it was not uncommon in the early church for a master and a slave to go to church together. And there were often times where the slave would be an elder in the church and the master was expected to submit to his slave's spiritual leadership in that context. Can you imagine? That was radical thinking at that time and it was radically offensive uh, to many people outside of the church in their culture in, in first century, but it underscores the effectiveness of the church when we lay down our desire for gain and position and title and when we generously submit ourselves and all of our resources to God and His gospel. And so right after telling them to live according to that gospel, Paul describes some of the people in the Ephesian church who have been living and teaching contrary to the gospel. In fact, they've been, uh, they've been teaching others in the church that the point of the gospel is to bring believers personal wealth and material gain. This is the prosperity gospel at its worst. And as you can see, it's been around since the first century. And although we often give prosperity gospel preachers a free pass today because that type of false teaching can come across very appealing, Paul wasn't nearly as kind. He described the prosperity preachers at that time as, as one who's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You can see that evidence in people's lives today. Harsh words, but Paul knew that deviating from the truth of the gospel message within the church and teaching any other message or any other version of that message was subversive to the true mission of the church, what we'd been designed and equipped and commanded to do. And so the entire reason God gives us good gifts to begin with is so that we can carry out that mission that he created us for. And yet these false teachers were prostituting a false version of the gospel for their own gain. And again, unfortunately for some today, nothing has changed. Let's keep reading. Verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Paul says there's great gain in godliness when we are content with what God has given us. So the godliness that he speaks of is the opposite of greed. And notice... He's not condemning material things. Again, uh, hear me, it's okay to have nice things. He's condemning the desire in us for those material things because that desire, he says, can lead us into all sorts of evil and potentially away from the faith, right? He, he doesn't say that money is a root of all kinds of evils. He says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And so don't miss the connection here. 
between the desire to be rich and, and the prevalence of false teaching. Because those two enemies of the church have always been closely connected. They go hand in hand. Greed and false teaching have been married for 2,000 years. And they are leveraged by many a wolf in sheep's clothing to try and steal from God's people. And, and this isn't, by the way, just for preachers. David Gusick comments, he says, some of the most dangerous teaching in the church isn't done from a pulpit, but in informal private conversations, meaning anyone can lead anyone else in the church away from the truth. And so Paul points out when, when we claim to be followers of Christ but live contrary to the gospel, we are blaspheming God's name and his word, defaming him. It's serious business when money and materialism become a god in our lives. And it's bad enough when we struggle with this personally. But if we're not careful, because we want to justify our own actions, if we're not careful, we begin to adjust the Word of God to fit our lifestyle instead of adjusting our lifestyles to fit the Word of God to the point that our motives and our actions no longer reflect the gospel that we claim to represent, which is often by the way, how false teaching starts. This is precisely what Paul is confronting through Timothy at Ephesus. So last week, if you were here, you'll remember in our outline, we saw that generosity is the way of Christ. Generosity demands a response. Generosity is extravagant giving. And in our story today, Paul is teaching us that generosity is the remedy for greed. The way that we combat greed in our lives is by being generous with that which he's blessed us with. Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, we need to learn to be content with what we have, living godly lives, which are gospel lives, generous lives, focused on what we can give more than what we can get. And again, last week we talked about how much, how much giving does it take for our giving to be considered generous. So we looked at Paul's use of that word uh, generosity in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That was our text from last week where he used the, the Greek word haplotes, which literally means a copious bestowal or a bountifulness or liberality. Paul was saying that generosity is giving copiously, bountifully, liberally, which is exactly how Jesus gave. And so here in his letter to Timothy, Paul says, be content with what you have, live godly lives, live like Jesus lived, then let that be your desire for gain. For that is what keeps us from ungodly desires, from longing to be rich, which leads us and others away from the truth. Generosity, giving extravagantly is the remedy. It is the antidote for greed. Jesus said, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke 12, 15. You see, when our desire to gain overtakes our desire to give, we've not only lost our gospel perspective, but we've lost our Christian testimony to the world. And on top of that, everything that we've poured our passion into when, when our focus is on material wealth, it all amounts to absolutely nothing. In the end, Paul said, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. And if you keep reading in Luke 12, Jesus says the same thing in a parable. Every material thing that we long for and strive for and accumulate in this life will amount to nothing at the end of your life. While on the contrary, the generosity, 
that you sow into others' lives, when you passionately pursue giving into other people's lives, that lasts forever. After the parable in Luke 12, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Verse 33. Generosity, giving extravagantly, is the remedy for greed. It is the cure for greed, and it should be a hallmark in the life of every Christian. Now, as we uh, continue to read, Paul explains to Timothy how living this kind of generous life should be an example to the others. Let's read verses 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So in direct contrast to the false teachers mentioned earlier, Paul describes the life of true ministry to Timothy, which is one unmotivated by greed, unlike the false teachers, and instead focused on righteousness, godliness, he says, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And then he tells Timothy to live up to the good confession that Timothy has made, just as Jesus lived up to the same good confession that he made before Pontius Pilate. And so as always, everything comes back to Jesus. The example that he lived out for us. We are to do the work that Jesus did to not only profess the gospel message but to live it out as members of this church the family of believers we've talked about it much in the past it's one thing to believe in Christ it is another thing entirely to follow Christ this is the essence of the church when believers come together in unity and do the things that Jesus did while simultaneously forsaking the self-serving worldly motivations that so many have tried to attach to the gospel. And, and so just to remind Timothy and all of us, Paul describes the infinitely superior motivation that should be at the center of all that we do, all that we long for, all that we work for, all that we look for. Not worldly gain, he says, but he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. That is our motivation. That is our drive. That is the reason for doing what we do. It's all about Jesus Christ. And then, uh, just as Paul started the chapter, talking about those among us with the least amount of material resources to offer, he finishes the letter by talking about those with the most amount of material resources to offer. So let's read it from verse 17 to the end. He says, As for the rich in this present age, 
charged them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So Paul starts out telling Timothy to tell the slaves among them to be generous, and he ends the letter telling Timothy to tell the rich among them to be generous. In other words, it doesn't matter our station or position or title or status or financial portfolio. If you are a member of his church, a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are to be generous with everything that God has given you. No exceptions, no exemptions, no excuses. Generosity is the remedy for greed, and I love how Paul put it in verse 20. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. In other words, the true riches in this life that we should be guarding are not financial deposits, but the good news of the gospel and the new life that we've been given in him. That's the deposit that we must protect above every other craving in this world. It cures our greed and keeps us focused on Christ, which we'll need in the days ahead because there's much to be done. The church is God's agent through which his work is accomplished on this earth. And so he pours out resources into our lives, not so that we can hoard them for our own personal comfort and security. He pours out his resources on us, the church, to enable us to be generous in the work of Christ that we've been called to. Okay, generosity is the fuel that keeps the church running. Our resources are intended to finance the mission of Jesus Christ through his church. The, the propagation of the American dream has led a lot of people to believe that our resources are intended primarily for our own personal benefit. And if, if there happens to be any excess at the end of the day and we're good religious people, then maybe we should give some of it to the church. But as we saw last week, everything that we have, according to Scripture, Everything we have came from God and belongs to God. We're nothing more than managers of his resources, and he's commanded us to be generous, to give extravagantly to his church so that his work can be accomplished. The fuel that keeps healthy, thriving, and growing churches healthy, thriving, and growing is generous people. Of course, we're focused on Christ, guided and empowered by his Holy Spirit, according to the plan of the Father, and then he uses us to carry out that plan, which is precisely why he blesses us with so much, so that we can be generous with so much in accomplishing that plan. It means the mission of the church can be carried out without lack. And as we've seen here in this letter, how much we think we have or don't have has no bearing on our responsibility to be generous. There are people who believe that the uh, the church exists solely to bless them. Well, the church does exist to bless us. And it also exists as a means through which we can be a blessing to others. And so last week we talked about how much is enough when we talk about giving. And so we, uh, I told you about why my family, why we give a lot more than 10% of our income to the church, which was God's standard for his people all throughout scripture. And yet in Christ, 
under the new covenant. He wants everything. He wants it all. We errantly think that 10%, which is a tithe, was this Old Testament, Old Covenant requirement that has no bearing on us today because we live under grace. And so there's no standard anymore for us in the church. When actually Jesus said, no, there is a standard and it is new. The new standard is everything. So go ahead and use as much of my money as you need to take care of yourself and your family, yes, and then spend the rest of your life figuring out ways to give the rest of it away through my church because Jesus says, I want all of you. No more percentages. I want it all. And again, if you weren't here and you don't believe me, you can watch the sermon from last week. I won't go through that again today other than to say, We are to be generous. We are to give extravagantly, and that giving is to be done through the church, which we also covered last week, because the church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. That's it. And when we do that, when we give to the church extravagantly, lavishly, generously, the church is then able to carry out the mission of the gospel. We are then able to carry out the mission of the gospel. And the degree of effectiveness to which the church is able to carry out that mission is directly correlated to the degree of generosity among its members. The the more generous we are, the more we can accomplish together. And the less generous we are, the less we can do for Christ. And so I mentioned last Sunday that we would focus that day on talking about the theology of giving or the spiritual aspects of giving. And of course, it's all spiritual. But for the rest of this message... I want to talk to you for just the next couple of minutes about the practical aspects of giving. What exactly we can accomplish when we become generous, extravagant givers. Uh, When Mary Beth and I and our kids were living and pastoring a church in Fairbanks, Alaska, and we, we knew we heard from God that we were supposed to come here and plant a church in South Carolina, one of the factors that drove our focus to Traveler's Rest was in part the fact that there weren't any churches, uh, particularly at that time, that we could find doing what God had put in our hearts to do the way that we felt convicted to do it in this city. So we felt a burden for Traveler's Rest specifically, and there was a desire to fill that need, to be a gospel-centered, word-centered, Christ-centered church that was focused on people instead of programs, a church with a simple uncluttered vision to experience life together as we live out the gospel and really a natural and straightforward approach to the mission of making disciples through genuine community, strong relationships rooted in a shared focus on Christ through our worship and the study of the scriptures and a desire to share all of that with other people. And yet as much as we have this burden for traveler's rest. We knew then as we know now that God didn't give us this vision for a new church just to keep it to ourselves or even to our town. And so it has been our desire and intention from day one, and it still is, to plant other churches and other church campuses in other towns like this one that don't have what we have. And of course, as the past four years have flown by, we've realized all the more that there are a lot of people who are hungry for what we have here, which is absolutely beautiful. And so we began trying to export that by any means possible. We published a book of true stories from you, from your lives, so that our community could get to know us a little better and hear a clear presentation of the gospel before ever walking through those doors. 
The response, by the way, has been unbelievable. Those books have made their way all across the country into the prison systems. I don't know how. I get letters from prisoners who've accepted Christ after they read our book and then they've given it to a cellmate or the guy at the table with them and he read it and he accepted Christ and he gave it and they've made their way through the prison system. I can't tell you how many people have called me and said, hey, I got this book in the mail from your church and I read through it and I prayed the prayer at the end and I've given my heart to Christ. We have people in this church right now today who are here because of that book. We started seeking missionaries who are like-minded. People who are passionately and generously devoted to sharing the gospel, even in some of the darkest and most dangerous parts of the world. Our fellowship calls it the Live Dead program. We started supporting them, many of them, as many as we could absolutely scrape together money to support. We started feeding hungry people and clothing them from day one. We have fixed broken houses and broken cars. Through us, Jesus has fixed broken marriages and broken people. We've paid bills and purchased furniture and fixtures and appliances. We've brought school supplies and winter coats for kids who had none, provided more Christmas gifts to kids in our community than my kids and probably many of yours have ever gotten, and Thanksgiving meals that would make any mom proud. It's called generosity. And it is central to this church, to our mission. But listen, as wonderful as it has been, and it's been pretty wonderful, there's so much more. Not only that we can do, listen, there's so much more that he's calling us to do. We want to publish another book. We want to fund many, many, many more missionaries who are waiting, by the way, for us to be able to do that right now. We, we want to plant other churches as we train others here and send them out to do that. We want to expand our ministries across the board. In fact, on the first Sunday in November, a couple of months from now, we're adding a second Sunday morning service because we filled up this new building because people are finding, about, uh, finding out about what God's doing here and they want to be a part of it. There's so much happening and yet there's so much more to be done and the reality is it all costs money and manpower. And maybe you don't know this. I don't know. We never talk about it. I'm the only person who's ever been paid from this church. My wife has worked here uh, two days a week at a minimum. It's usually more than that. Since day one, for four years, she's never been paid a penny. Pastor Alex has faithfully been running our youth ministry for years. We have several families that are members of our church today because of that youth group. He's never been paid a penny. And by the way, just to be clear, it's very biblical, if anybody's wondering, for the church to pay its workers, its elders and pastors. First, uh, first Timothy 5, 17 and 18, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, uh, Galatians 6, 6, Luke 10, 7, they all speak to that. But it's not just about paying people for what they're already doing. It's about us being able to continue to grow. I, I was doing a funeral uh, jointly with another pastor not long ago. A guy I had never met, an elderly guy, he retired. He had a doctorate degree in church growth, even though there was such a thing. And he, we were talking about our churches, and I told him we planted a church, and I didn't tell him how big it was or anything, and he said, well, uh, are you the only person that you get paid? I said, yeah. He said, are you the only guy that gets paid? I said, yeah, I'm the only paid pastor there. He said, well, just interesting information for you to know. I don't know how big your church is. He said, but with one full-time paid pastor, 
you can effectively lead a church of about 150 people. Uh, some a little more, some a little less, depending on your giftings and your capacity and such. But that's it. He said, you, you will never grow appreciably beyond that with one full-time paid pastor. And he said, so, I'm just curious, how big is your church? It's just about 150 people. That was a few months ago. We've actually, we run about 180 now uh, most Sundays. We've been over 200 a couple of times on events, but basically we're in that level. Everything he had said to me that day has been true for us, all the numbers he shared. Now listen, we're doing well, but I'm just telling you the plain truth. We will not grow much beyond where we are now if we don't start adding paid staff members because my capacity to pastor effectively, my capacity to pastor the church well is being tested. I literally cannot meet with everyone and give adequate attention to every need anymore as the only paid pastor here because we've grown beyond the size congregation and facilities and ministries that one pastor can attend to well. Please understand, this is by no means a complaint. In fact, it's a praise report. I'm so excited about what God is doing here. I can hardly stand it if you can't tell. I'm overjoyed that we actually have to have this conversation. This is a good thing. This is good news. And I'm very excited because we're growing. And it's healthy growth. But listen, when the flock becomes larger than one shepherd can tend to, something will eventually begin to suffer, either the shepherd or the sheep or both. And so as long as we're growing and it's healthy growth, then we need to be responsible stewards of that which God is sending us and put enough oversight and leadership in place to take good care of His church and the mission before us. And a key ingredient to that fuel, which is needed to keep it all running well, is generous people. We have to be generous, extravagant, faithful givers if this church is to become all that God has intended for us to become. We're doing well. Financially, we're doing well. It's not about staying where we are. It's about what does God have for us next. We have staff here now. If we could pay them, even part-time for now, to be in the office and in the community during the week. So we wouldn't merely be compensating them for what, they, what they're already doing, although that, that wouldn't be wrong. But we'd also be able to more effectively lead and serve this church because there would be more time with them in the office. And as it continues to grow... Those positions would become full-time positions. We'd love to add Pastor Alex on full-time today, if we could. We'd love to bring my wife on part-time at least today, if we could. They'd do so much for this church, but they're limited in what they can do. We need to accommodate the growth as well. We have several uh, guys right now in our eldership track. It's a, uh, that's a one-year program for prospective pastors that we developed here when we started the church. I have a burden to disciple uh, young guys that want to be in the pastorate. And so we started this program. I wrote curriculum. It's a one-year training program because we want to raise up leaders from within our church as much as possible. And there are several guys in that program right now that could come on to our staff in the future to help us grow in a healthy, balanced way. And as we have been growing, we've been meeting others with great experience some amazing people from previous ministry posts who are now coming into the church who could become a part of our pastoral staff, which would make a tremendous difference in what we're able to accomplish. Okay, the truth is, 
I want to pick up the phone today and call these missionaries who I know are waiting to be able to go onto the field right now, and I want to support them. I want us to expand our outreach ministries and our mercy ministries, and if it keeps going the way it has been, I don't know how many services a week we can pull off before I fall over, but at some point, we may have to move into something larger or start planning other churches or both. It's very exciting. We're doing well, but it's not enough to take that next step. And all of it costs money. And all of that is up to God, by the way. And hear me, ultimately, He will determine the size and scope and reach of this church. So we entrust all of that to Him. Okay? Hear my heart. Our job is not to worry and fret about all of this. Not at all. Our job is to attend to the growth and expansion that He's putting into our lap right now, which means we have some next steps before us that we need to address if we're going to continue to grow this church and these ministries and fulfill all that He's called us to. And so I'm simply asking you to consider what it means to be generous and to honestly assess that in your own life and in your own heart. And if you're doing any less than all that you absolutely could be doing, then I'm simply asking you, what are you waiting for? Let's not wait another day to be generous givers. Let's give him everything that we can. And then he can turn it into whatever he wants it to be. I just don't want us to fall short of all that we can be, all that he intends for us to be for a lack of generosity. This is his church, and this is our church, and we have an opportunity before us with what he started here. We have an opportunity to do something exceptional, to become a remarkable force for change in this city and far beyond a place where the gospel is lived out through this family, this community of faith as we give ourselves to God and to one another. A place with a singular focus to make Jesus known through our lives, how we live and how we give together, together as the church. And that will require us to be extravagant, generous givers. But that's what the world needs to see. And that is nothing less than what he's called us to. Authentic gospel living. And I can promise you, you won't, you won't regret it. In fact, of all the years I've spent talking to people about their lives, helping them, particularly through difficult stages of their lives, everyone always looks back and reflects on their past choices in those moments, their relationships, their lives. I have yet to ever have anyone say to me, in 20 years, no one's ever said to me, I wish I'd given less. I wish I'd done less. I've never heard that. But what I, what I hear constantly, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I wish I'd given more. I wish I'd done more with what I had. So what are we waiting for? Because I know that God wants to do uncommon, exceptional, remarkable things through us together as we spend our lives generously giving to Him and to one another. Let's pray.